So whenever I, I read this passage, I think about a story that happened when I was six years old. So I was born in Boston, and then later I moved uh, to uh, Pennsylvania, this small town called Exton. Uh, really, it was just this tiny town uh, near Philadelphia. And after a year, our family decided to, to move back to Korea, South Korea. And so my father, uh, not knowing when we will return to the States, he made a big decision. Uh, I have an older brother, younger sister, uh, so five people in the family. And, and he said, well, we're going to make, make a trip to the West Coast. Uh, my, all my life, I've just been in the East Coast in a small, kind of tiny town, uh, very quiet. And then we went to the West Coast. One of the first places we hit was Las Vegas. Uh, it, it was, it was eye-opening, right? Number one, it was so hot. Uh, but number two, like, uh, the casinos, right, uh, the, the hotels, everything was, like, uh, shiny, like, very loud. And, and a six-year boy being in that atmosphere, it was, like, awesome. And I still remember my mom uh, tells me the story till this day. Uh, she would share how she lost me at one point. Uh, my Family, they were just doing their stuff, and if you have three kids, a lot of times, uh, you know, you mark one each, and then you lose sight of, uh, of one, and that happened to be me, and so uh, they lost me in the middle of Las Vegas, and so they're looking for me, searching for me, asking people uh, you know, where I was, and they finally found me at a hotel lobby uh, right in front of a slot machine. And I was just staring at that slot machine, like hearing the coins drop. And, and I mean, this is in the 90s, so I think it's different now. If you're underage, you can't even go into that kind of like, you know, area, uh, I believe. But yeah, it, it was great. I was having the time of my life. My parents were really worried about me, but I was so consumed with all that was going on with the slot machine. Like I was just having a great time. I think there's a lot of uh, similarities between my story and Jesus' story. Um, there's a family that is traveling, there is a child that is missing, and there's, there's parents that are really panicking, uh, and they're afraid, they're looking for their child. But there's one difference between uh, uh, my story and Jesus' story is that Jesus, he was not a, 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 a normal child. He was not your typical 12-year-old boy. And uh, he was very, very different from any other child. And so uh, I want us to look at this story uh, with that mindset to understand what was different about Jesus. It says in verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So again, you see that the parents of Jesus, they were really devoted to God. They were pious they were faithful to the law. They tried to follow every Jewish tradition. Uh, they tried to honor every law that they, they saw. We see that they circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. Uh, we also saw that uh, Jesus was given uh, at the temple, presented as the firstborn to God, and also the purification process as well. Mary and Joseph, they brought two doves because they couldn't afford a full lamb, but still they wanted to honor God by following all that was required of the law. And even in today's passage, it says that they're in Jerusalem because they're celebrating the Passover feast according to custom. And you know they're devoted to this custom because they're going there every year. Now, it wasn't required for the whole family to go to Jerusalem. Normally, it was expected for men in the family to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But Joseph says, no, I'm taking the whole family. Every one of us, we're going to Jerusalem each year so that everyone can experience what the Passover is all about. 
And from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, to Jerusalem, it was normally a three-day journey. You have to walk about 20 miles per day in order to get to Jerusalem on time. And so this was a big commitment uh, by Jesus' parents. We also know that um, a lot of people didn't stay the whole week to, to enjoy this festival. Normally they would leave after a couple days, but we are told in today's passage in verse 43 that the family of Jesus, they stayed till the very end. And so different things are pointing to the fact that Mary and Joseph, they were faithful, they were pious, uh, they, they were honoring um, in, in a way that they really cared about God's word and, and they cared about um, God's law. And so they were this, this very religious, a good, faithful couple. But we also see that they weren't perfect because something happens. It says in verse 43, after the feast, they returned and, and, and as they were returning, uh, Jesus, he happened to stay behind. He stayed in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. And it says in verse 44, but supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey. So they went a day without noticing that Jesus wasn't there. And it says, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, I don't know if you watched Home Alone. That was, I think, the first movie that I watched uh, in the movie theater. Uh, But Home Alone, great movie. Uh, A movie that you always play during Christmas. You have this family that is is full of children. Uh, And then you have this, this, this boy named Kevin. And he has brothers, sisters, cousins, and they, they're going on this trip. And the whole family, they're getting things together. It's a hectic morning, chaos. They finally arrive at the airport. Uh, they have this teenage guy counting like the family members, and everyone is on board. And it's quite interesting because the children are, are flying economy, but the parents are flying business. And so they have this moment where, where they're flying, and they're talking to one another, um, Kevin's mom, Kate, she tells her husband, well, I have a terrible feeling that something is off, that something is not wrong. And, and the husband is like, no, no, everything is okay. It's just because we had a rough morning. And, and Kate's like, no, no, no. Did you turn off the coffee machine? And the husband says, yeah, yeah, you forgot to do it, so I did it. And, 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 and then she says, well, uh, did you lock the doors? And the husband's like, yeah, I locked the doors. And then, and then Kate says, well, did you close the garage? And, and the husband says, oh, yeah, that's what we forgot to do. So don't worry. Like, I mean, like we still have the doors locked, so it's going to be okay. And then out of nowhere, she, she, the camera zooms into her face, and she's like, Kevin. And then it goes all the way back home, and then you have this scene where Kevin is home alone. And, and it shows you that these parents, uh, in the midst of their business, they were careless. They were irresponsible. You're thinking when you're watching that movie, how how can you lose your child like, and, and, and get on an airplane without noticing that your child is not there? And that's kind of the impression that we get when we read this story. But you have to understand that the culture in the first century was quite different. Jesus was part of this village called Nazareth, which was a small town. And um, parents, they didn't have to helicopter over their children. They didn't have to kind of track them and, and put devices on them or like, you know, monitor everywhere they go because the whole village knew each other. Like there were a lot of families, relatives that were living together. And so if your child is not there, you're just assuming, oh, he's probably somewhere else in some, some family's house or a friend's house. And it's just safe overall. And it was uh, a very common thing for the whole village to travel together 
to Jerusalem during the Passover, and that's exactly what we see. We see that Mary and Joseph, when they notice that Jesus is not there, the first place that they go to is their family's acquaintances. They're trying to look through their relatives to see if Jesus is there. And so I don't think it was necessary that that Mary and Joseph were irresponsible. It was just part of the custom. They were assuming that Jesus is probably with one of his cousins or maybe one of his brothers, like one of his uncles or something, right? Of course he's going to be safe. And then finally, after a day journey, when they come together as a family, that's when they realize that something is off. And so, so we see that it's not that the parents of, of Jesus were irresponsible. There's something else that is going on. Even for me, I feel this way uh, towards my church family, sometimes Timothy, because he loves minivans. Uh, he, that's, that's his dream that our our, our home, like that our family would own a minivan because he loves the DVD player in the minivan. Um, and, 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 he, and, and so what he would do when he sees other families having a minivan, he would just jump in it. Like in, in our church, and some of you have experienced this. Like he would just jump in, buckle up, and he's like, I'm not leaving. And then if we're going to the same destination, we're like, yeah, that's fine. Like, because I trust our families. Like, we, we did life together, and we know that, no, Timothy's going to be safe. And that's kind of the vibe that's going around um, in, in this passage. But after, after a day journey, finally, they realize that Jesus is not there. So they travel back a full day, uh, and they finally back in Jerusalem. And then they search for another day. So three days after they last seen Jesus, they finally see Jesus in Jerusalem. And where is he? He's in the temple. And that's a big deal. Jesus is found in the temple, not in a playground, not in a restaurant, not in a toy shop, but he is found in the temple, the place which was serving as a symbol of God's presence. So here's the main point that I, I want to make. Jesus was consumed with the Father. Jesus was consumed with the Father. There's a lot of different questions that we can ask about this passage, but I think the reason why Luke is including this particular story about Jesus' teenage years and by the way, you don't have another story about Jesus being a teenager. Like you have Jesus' birth story. You have this quick story about Jesus being presented in the temple after about a month. And then you jump to age 12, where this specific passage, and then you jump to age 30. So there's a reason why Luke is including this particular story to tell us something about Jesus. So he's setting something up. And I think the key to unlocking this story is found actually in the verse before this story and after this story. If you look at verse 40, it says, Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and the child grew, Jesus grew and become, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And it says in verse 52, ending the story, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, we often have this idea that Jesus, the moment that he was born, that he had everything you know, figured out for himself. Like, he was perfectly God, and so he had knew all the answers. He, was, he was perfect, had perfect wisdom. And this area is a, a really a mystery because the Bible clearly says that although Jesus was fully divine, he was absolutely God. But there's this aspect where he was also fully human. He was a baby, physically. Like, you know, he wasn't fully grown. Like, he had to mature and, and grow up. But also we see in verse 40, 40 that he was being filled with wisdom. So he's mentally growing. Like he's growing in his knowledge and his wisdom. We see that again in verse 52. And, and so there's this level of mystery where we see the perfect God, the Son of Man, him growing in maturity. And this does not mean Jesus was imperfect. 
But we do see that Jesus intentionally, although he is fully capable of displaying his divine nature, he made a, a voluntary choice to limit his ability to, to, to display humanity. And we see this in Philippians 2 where it says that although Jesus he is equal to God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He came as a form, not just as a form of man, but he humbled himself to the point of a servant. So you see the humility of Jesus. He's humbling himself to take the form of a man. And what that means is he's putting limitations. Although he is fully capable of doing certain things, he's not, he's not using uh, his, his, his abilities as, as God. But he's growing up. He, he, he's maturing in, in certain ways. He's being filled with the wisdom of God. And so this gives us hope because we often think the only way that you can live a, the perfect Christian life is if you're Jesus and if you're God. Well, partially that is true, but we also see that Jesus grew into the man that he became to be in the rest of the Gospels. And what we see in this particular story about Jesus' childhood is this. If there's one thing that, that you and I should, should understand is that Jesus was all about the Father, that he was consumed with God the Father. He wanted the Father more than anything else. How many of you are 12 years old? Like, how many of you? Any couple of you guys? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Okay. Now, 12 years old, uh, it's a very interesting time, uh, period in your life, because that's when your eyes are opening. You're actually having, you know, different tastes and things that you really, really like. You, you're able to get into things very quickly, and, and you're having a hard time getting out of those things. Like, you really get into games, um, maybe TV shows or um, social media, YouTube, friends you really and begin to uh, you know, cherish and treasure your relationships. Some people really get into guys or girls, and like this is when you start developing crushes, right? You're thinking about this person all the time. And so you have this mental ability to, to fix your mind on something. You're consumed with something. Some people are really consumed right now with sports, maybe music, art. Maybe when you were young, you were consumed with books which I would love to talk to you uh, because, you know, I have no idea how that is possible. But, um, but also you can be consumed with food. You can be consumed with clothes. Like you're really into buying clothes or like you're aware of fashion. But 12-year-old Jesus, he was consumed with his father. He was consumed with God the Father. And that's the key to understand how he grew up to be the, really the, the perfect man of God. We see that there are three things that point us to the fact that Jesus was consumed uh, with the Father. Number one is Jesus. this. We know that Jesus was consumed with the Father because he actively sought after the Father's presence. He went after the Father's presence. He is seeking the Father's presence. He's found in the temple out of all places, not at a friend's house, but at the temple, which was a symbol for God's presence among his people. It was a place of worship. It was a place that people intentionally traveled to meet God, to experience God. So uh, what the Bible is telling us today is that Jesus was hungry for the presence of God. He was longing for the presence of God. And this kind of echoes the, the words in Psalm 27, 4, where the psalmist says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So here you have a person who is all about God's presence, 
who is dwelling in the house of the Lord, gazing upon the beauty of, of the Lord. And this really is a picture of Jesus at 12 years old. And so you see that you're not too young to have a personal, powerful relationship with the Father. Like, you might think teenage years, like, I'm still learning, I'm still growing. But notice that at 12 years old, you have Jesus having this incredible relationship with the Father. One thing that's really interesting in the Gospel of Luke is it begins with this scene in the temple where uh, Zechariah, uh, the father of, of John the Baptist, he is engaging with an angel. And then the Gospel of Luke ends with a scene at the temple where after Jesus gives this great commission, the disciples are in the temple worshiping. Uh, they, they are praising God, thanking God for all that he has done. And so the book begins and ends with God's presence, with the temple. We also see throughout Jesus' ministry that Jesus was very intentional about isolating himself to spend time with the Father in prayer. This is something that we're going to see in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Although he had a lot of stuff to do, he was a busy man. He literally had a crowd following him, you know, people who needed healing left and right, people who were possessed with demons left and right, all these different things, people who are in need of physical help, provision, and yet Jesus, he is able to control his schedule in a way that he would isolate from the crowd and spend time with the Father. His prayer life was so vibrant to the point that the only request that the disciples made all throughout the Gospels is that I want to learn this prayer life. They didn't ask Jesus, how, can you, how do you preach this way? They didn't ask Jesus, how do you do ministry in such a way? But they did ask Jesus in Luke 11, teach us how to pray. The one thing that they really wanted to learn from Jesus is how do you spend so much time with the Father in prayer? Jesus, his life was marked with this passion, this desire that he had for the presence of his Father, that he longed to be with the Father. But we also see that Jesus was consumed with the Father. And evidence is that he was actively, Jesus was actively studying God's word. Jesus was actively studying God's word. That's the second point that I want to make. Look at verse 46 and 47. It says this, After three days, they found him in the temple, but he's not just there, but it says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answer. So Jesus is at the temple. Now, we normally picture Jesus giving a lecture to people, you know, giving a sermon to, to older people, and people are amazed. But that's not the picture that you have in the Bible. Jesus is not teaching in this particular scene. He is actually learning. He's receiving. He is engaging in, in, with God's word with these people. You know, he is actively seeking knowledge in God's word among these scholars, these um, scribes, experts of the law. Most likely these are people who would have a PhD today uh, in God's word. And Jesus is there taking everything in. And he's doing this because he wants to know the Father and he knows that the Father speaks to his people specifically through his word. And so his way of engaging with the Father, seeking God's presence, it's not just that he's just meditating on the Father, but he's actively studying God's word. And I think that's something that has to be true in our lives today too. The only way that you can clearly know the Father is through his clear word. This is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that this is the very breath of God, the word of God. And it is profitable for teaching, for proof, correction. It is, it is complete in a way that it can help us mature and do every good work. And so the very word of God we have in our hands, and that's the 
clearest way that God speaks to us, that the Father engages with us. And so Jesus, he, he is engaging with these questions and he's looking for answers. And I shared this with our youth during the retreat. I really believe that the, one of the best ways that you can grow as a Christian is asking good questions. Like some people think it is a bad thing to ask questions. Like it shows that you're, not, you're, you're questioning and you're doubting, but I don't, I don't think so. When you're asking questions, it means that you're engaged. It means that you're thinking. I, I hope when, when, when I'm teaching someone that they're asking and responding um, to, to, to what I'm teaching. And that's exactly what's happening. Asking questions is not a simple thing. It's actually a godly thing. Even Jesus asked questions and he was looking for answers. But at the same time, he was willing to humble himself and, and accept the teachings that he was receiving. So you see that he made himself available for this teaching, but also that he was humble enough to sit under this teaching. So I think one thing that we can do practically in our life is giving our lives to the teaching and the preaching and to the studying of, of God's word. Now, I really believe one of the reasons why a lot of us, even adults, we've been challenged in many ways. If you've been to a retreat before, uh, for a couple of days, you isolate yourself, you disengage with your work, all that's going on. I think for our youth as well, you experienced this this past, couple, uh, this past winter retreat where literally, like, you know, your phone is not there, uh, and so you're able to focus a lot better. And I think that environment is, is key. It's important because we live in a day and age where we are always connected to something. Like the device that we have in our pocket is always ringing. It's always distracting us. There's endless distraction that's taking place. And here's the real problem. It's not that that's just causing distractions. When you are engaged with something out there, which is the digital, digital world, then you are disengaged with what's happening in reality. Like one of the worst things that you can do when you go on a date is have your phone out. And like you're talking to the person and then you're, you're also constantly checking your phone. And even among friends, like if they're like, if, if they are uh, always on their phone when they're with you present in present, like you have to defriend them or something. Because that means they're more interested in what's going on in their social life online than what's happening in reality. And so intentionally, we have to make decisions to, to disconnect, to connect with God. Like, one reason why I, I make a conscious effort when I'm at home, I try not to even hold on to my phone because I want to stay engaged with my family. I want to stay engaged with uh, my children. And it's really difficult. But I think it takes that type of sacrifice and requirement for us to build a meaningful re relationship with, with the Lord. If, if you are really having a hard time disengaging and you really are worried about your, your phone, there's this incredible um, feature on your phone that, that, that will put your phone to sleep. Uh, do not disturb, and it's incredible because your phone can actually rest too. It's working so hard for you, and I think from time to time, you got to give it a break as well. Like, but we see that the more and more we are disengaged with the distractions, we are engaged with the Father, that we begin to see things eye to eye, that we engage in conversations, and it will do wonders for your relationship with God. And so Jesus, not only was he actively seeking for God's presence, but he was actively studying God's word. But we see in, in, in verse 48 and 49, Jesus actively, he was engaged also with the Father's work. So the Father's work is something that he really cared about. It says in verse 48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, 
Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I've been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this sounds so wrong, so disrespectful, because you know, Jesus' parents just been looking for Jesus for, for about two days now. Like, they haven't seen Jesus for the past three days. And they're worried, they're, they were anxious, they, they, they didn't know where Jesus was or what happened to him. And so they come to Jesus and it's like, and, and, and Mary says, yeah, my father and I, like, we were so worried about you. And, and Jesus, he doesn't say sorry. He didn't say, oh, I should have given you a heads up. He's like, why are you looking for me? Like, it's, he's asking a question to them. And he says, you should have expected me to, to be in this place, in my father's house. Now, notice that Jesus, he is calling in front of his parents. He's calling the temple his father's house. So he recognizes that ultimately his heavenly father is his true father. Now, some of us were tempted to take this passage and, and go home today and say, well, when your parents tell you something, it is none of your business. Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the case because you just go down to verse 51 and it says, when Jesus went back to Nazareth, he submitted to his parents. He submitted to his parents. And this is a side note. Um, if your parents are not perfect, you still obey them and honor them. Why? Because if, if Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who was the perfect Savior and Son, if he was willing to submit to his imperfect parents, then you and I should be willing to do the same as well. That's just something that we see in, in God's word. And so what's going on? How is it that Jesus is able to submit to his earthly parents in such a way, but at the same time, he's making a big deal about him being in the Father's house? I think this is what's going on. What Jesus is saying is this. He's not disrespecting his parents, his earthly parents. He's not telling Joseph, you know, who is not necessarily his biological father. He's not saying, you're not really not my father. No, he's not being that teenage boy who's acting against um, his father. But he's telling his parents, I have a priority. That as much as I love you, as much as I care for you, my allegiance ultimately belongs to my heavenly father. And so when it comes to obeying my heavenly father and obeying you, just know that I'm always going to choose my Heavenly Father, that He is number one priority in my life. And there are times when our earthly parents don't make the best decision, and, and even for me, I know this because I'm one of those parents who are not as godly, and I shouldn't say certain things, and, and I don't deserve the respect of my children. Uh, but I think for Jesus, the main reason why He was still obedient and honoring to His parents was because He cared about God's Word so much. The father told him, hey, honor your earthly father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus is simply thinking, if that's my father's will, I'm going to do it. If it's, if it's the father's will to submit to my parents, I'm going to do it. But at the same time, if it's the father's will for me to be in the temple and my parents have a big issue with that, then I have to let them know that I disagree. And there are times when you have to let your parents know that you disagree, but also in a respectful way. You can disagree and still not be a jerk right, uh, that, that you disagree, but also in an honoring way. I think about King Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel and his three friends, and when they were asked to bow down to the king, and, 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 and they disagree. They say, no, we can only honor God, and they stand before the king, and the king is like, okay, we're going to throw you into this, 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 this fire, this fiery furnace. And, and, and the three friends, they say that, well, so be it. Like, just know that we disagree, 
at the same time, because you're king, we're going to honor your decision. Throw us inside. Whatever punishment you want to put on, like, do it. And so there's a way to disagree, but also respectfully. But again, the main focus of today's passage is not parenting. It's not simply about um, how, how, how you can obey your parents, although there's a valuable lesson there. The key thing is this, that Jesus was so consumed with the Father that that, that relationship with the Father impacted every other relationship in his life, that it even impacted his earthly relationship with his parents. It, it later on it impacts every relationship that he has with his disciples and everyone else. I think one thing that you see throughout the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus, although he has a lot of enemies, he has a lot of friends, he's never shaken by the people around him. And it's not because he doesn't care about the people around him. What he does is he cares more about the Father than what people think, how, what people ask him to do. And so he's always locked in with the Father's will. And if, the, if it's the Father's will, he's willing to obey. If it's not the Father's will, he, he doesn't do what people ask him to do. And so he is locked in with the Father's will. And in the same way, I think we should be locked in with the Father's will and make much about the Father. It says in verse 50, uh, 50 it says, At first, the parents, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It's still a mystery that this 12-year boy would speak in such a way. But in verse 51, it says that the mother of Jesus, Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. So you can kind of tell that later on when you have that incident in John chapter 2 in the wedding at Cana when Jesus says, when Mary asked Jesus, can you help us? There's no more drinks uh, for the wedding. And, and Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Like, she's not that offended. Why? Because she knows that Jesus is about the Father's business. And at that moment, she's like, okay, this is one of those God moments, huh? That, like, I know that, you, that your Heavenly Father is up for something. So, okay, that's fine. You, you do you. Uh, and so we see in verse 52 today, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So how do we experience God's favor on a consistent basis in our life? How can we grow in wisdom, in our obedience to honor God? I think the key thing is to understand that you have a heavenly father who's worthy of your worship and your obedience. That is the key, that you are consumed with the father more than anything. Now, it's not just 12-year-olds that are consumed with certain things. Even as adults, teenagers, like we are consumed with so many other stuff in our lives. We're so busy with many things. Like everything is, everything is overwhelming in our life. In the midst of all that, what the Bible is telling us today, what God is telling us today is this, that although I know that you're busy, I know that a lot is happening in your life, but the key to walking faithfully with the Lord is to understand that you need your Father, that you have to be consumed with your Father. You study His Word, you seek His presence, you, you obey His work, and you are aware of what He's doing. And that's how much you treasure your father. Everything flows from the presence of God, the relationship that you have with your father. Now, it's quite interesting because if you go to the book of Acts, and if you're following the Bible reading plan, you know that there's some parallels between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because both books were written by Luke. And in the gospel of Luke, you're going to see that Jesus is closely walking with his father. He's about the father's business, and he's constantly devoted to prayer, and he's empowered by the Spirit to do the work of the gospel. 
in the book of, uh, of Acts, you see that now the disciples, they begin at the temple. They're waiting on God's presence. The Holy Spirit comes down, and as they are waiting, um, they, 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 are, they get empowered by the presence of God, by his spirit. They are devoted to God's word, and as they're do- doing so, they're doing the work of the ministry that they're devoted to God. And so what God is telling us today is that this life that Jesus lived is exactly how I want you to live your life. Now, I remember um, a couple weeks ago, was it? We had a time where all our EM families uh, got together. We had some games that we played together, and it was a great time. And towards the end, there was a time where we uh, had a questionnaire, and we answered some of the questions to, to, to learn more about each other's families. And one of the questions was this. Uh, for the parents, what do you want your children to be, become when they grow up? Right? And it was a great question. Uh, now, I was writing down for Timothy, he always wants to be a firefighter, so probably a firefighter. Uh, Irene, I have no idea, maybe a singer because she's just loud and, and, and she can really, really scream, and so maybe a singer. And then uh, one couple comes up, and, uh, and it's towards the early part of this, 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 um, uh, this sharing, and they say, okay, what do I want my children to be, become later on? Uh, a follower of Jesus, and, and that's when I'm like, okay, I got to change my answer, <laughs> right? Like, let, let me scratch that out. Like, I've I seen a lot of our families like, oh, man, that's just a mic drop right there. Like, how, how do you top that? And, and it was so refreshing, honestly, because a lot of times we are so career-driven. We are so driven by what we achieve in life and who we are and what we have in our possessions, And yet, I think the most important thing that we have in our life is our relationship with the Father, that we can follow Jesus and experience the fullness of the Father in his presence. And so the question I want to ask you today is, what do you want to become? Like, what do you want for your life? More than anything, do you desire the Father? Because the Bible is telling us in the Father's presence and in his plan, there is favor. And that is all that you need in your life. So be consumed with him. Make radical decisions so that you would isolate yourself to spend time with the Father and let him drive the agenda of your life. Amen? Let's pray.